0: Welcome to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with true crime masters and New York Times best-selling authors Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, part two of Terror Strikes Boston. Our hosts take you inside Boston Strong, their definitive account of the Boston Marathon bombings, later adapted into the major Hollywood film Patriots Day, starring Mark Wahlberg. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge.
1: Two pressure cooker bombs have just rocked the finish line of the Boston Marathon, leaving three people dead, including an eight-year-old boy and hundreds more wounded. Downtown Boston is now a war zone, and the city's hospitals are overrun with survivors suffering ghastly wounds. At Mass General Hospital, there's confusion. The parents of Crystal Campbell, a young restaurant manager killed on Boylston Street, arrive at the hospital with the belief she's still alive. Crystal had gone to the marathon with her friend, Karen Rand. After the first bomb went off, a responder sent Karen to the hospital with a handbag found next to her. It was Crystal's. And staffers now at MGH have mistaken Karen Rand for Crystal Campbell. Crystal's mom and dad have been escorted to the critical care unit to be reunited with their daughter. The dad looks at Karen Rand lying in bed. She's missing her left leg, but she's alive. That's, that's not my daughter, he says in agony. Where where's my daughter? Later, Boston cops arrive, and they show Crystal's dad a photo of her body taken back at the medical tent. He stares closely at the picture and collapses.
2: As the lead reporter for the Boston Herald, I was dispatched to the John F. Kennedy Memorial Library, which was on fire. Thick black smoke from the library belched high into the sky as I pulled into the parking lot of the building on the shores of Dorchester Bay. I knew about the two explosions at the finish line, and it was obvious that Boston was under attack. It was believed there was also an explosion at the library, and the speculation was that it was part of a broader terror plot. In short time, however, firefighters report that the fire is not connected to the bombings, and I'm dispatched to the finish line on Boylston Street. As I arrive on the scene, it's eerie. Brothers Tamerlan and Jokar Sarnaev disappeared into the throngs of terrified witnesses fleeing the finish line. The bombers were long gone. But the carnage they created is there, on full display, on Boston's most iconic street. Metal barriers are tipped over. Runners wander around with dazed looks on their faces, some looking for their families, others just trying to get away. Sirens wail. Police officers swarm the street, which is visibly soaked in blood. The FBI begins interviewing survivors, including Martin Richard's mother, Denise, who is critically wounded. She's just undergone five hours of surgery to save her eye. Amazingly, she has near-total recall of the bombing and describes the crime scene with pinpoint accuracy. She also knows that her son Martin is gone. Michelle LaRue has just woken up from surgery. Doctors tell her the wound to her arm had just missed her main artery. Had it severed, she would have lost it and most likely would have died. She shakes her hair with her one good arm and tiny BBs fall out. It's evidence from the pipe bomb, and she hands it over to the FBI. When Mary Daniel wakes up from surgery, she learns that her left leg has been amputated. Her heart also stopped twice while she was unconscious. Still, she considers herself lucky to be alive. Jeff Bauman has lost both legs, and he says he knows who the bomber is. I know who did it, he tells a police officer at Boston Medical Center. Bauman remembers locking eyes with a suspicious-looking man outside Marathon Sports just before the first bomb went off. The man wore a thick hooded coat and he looked serious. Bauman found his demeanor odd given the party atmosphere that was around them. After enduring hours of surgery, Bauman's recovering in his hospital bed and he asks for a pen and a piece of paper. He takes it and writes, Bag, saw the guy, he looked right at me. In Washington, President Barack Obama addresses the grieving nation.
1: We still do not know who did this or why, and people shouldn't jump to conclusions before we have all the facts. But make no mistake, we will get to the bottom of this, and we will find out who did this, we'll find out why they did this. Any responsible individuals, any responsible groups, will feel the full weight of justice. The Tsarnaevs don't appear to be too concerned by the president's threat. They don't go into hiding. Instead, they go grocery shopping at a Whole Foods store in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the younger brother is caught on a surveillance camera buying a gallon of milk just minutes after fleeing Boylston Street. Jokar leaves the store and returns to exchange the milk for a different brand. Later... He drives 71 miles to his dorm at the University of Massachusetts campus in the town of Dartmouth. He uses his campus ID to work out in the gym. Back in his dorm room, he fires off these tweets over the next several days. Ain't no love in the heart of the city. Stay safe, people. There are people that know the truth, but remain silent. And there are people that speak the truth, but we don't hear them because they're the minority. I'm a stress-free kind of guy. It's late Monday night, April 15th. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick mobilizes 300 soldiers from the Massachusetts National Guard to help secure the perimeter of what now is a 20-block crime scene. It's the largest deployment of soldiers in the city of Boston in nearly a century, armored Humvees clutter the historic Boston Common. Hospitals, hotels, and colleges are patrolled by cops wielding semi-automatic rifles. Still, no terrorist group has claimed responsibility for the bombings, and the FBI fears that sleeper cells are now being activated across the city. The investigation is about to get a jolt, thanks to Boston Police
2: Detective Danny Keeler's decision to focus on surveillance cameras and cell phone pictures from the finish line. The FBI's computer analysis response team has narrowed down hundreds of thousands of images to a select few. The FBI technicians focus on the second blast at Forum. They zoom in on a black backpack on the ground in the exact spot that analysts determined was the seat of the bomb. Standing over the backpack is a young man wearing a white baseball cap backwards. They nickname him White Hat. More photos show White Hat walking with another man wearing a dark baseball cap and sunglasses. He's nicknamed Black Hat. These are the suspects, but still, the FBI is reluctant to share the photos fearing a public relations nightmare if they identify the wrong people. This calculated decision proves to be a tragic mistake. Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis, a big burly man with a booming voice, finally barks, Release the photos! I want their names! This is my fucking city! 24 hours later, the FBI finally releases the photos of the suspects to the public. MIT police officer Sean Collier is one of millions of people who post the FBI images on his Facebook page. He's working the 3-11 shift patrolling the college campus in nearby Cambridge.
1: Now, after the photos of the bomb suspects are released, a girl following Jokar Sarnayev's Twitter account tweets him the photo of White Hat with the message, LOL, is this you? I didn't know you went to the marathon. The eyes of the world are now on the Sarnayev brothers. Their arsenal is low, and they don't have much time left to pull off their second act, the bombing of Times Square. They have five pipe bombs left, a Ruger nine millimeter handgun, a BB gun, a hunting knife and a machete. If they're gonna bring war to New York City, they'll need more weapons. The brothers drive through Cambridge and spot Sean Collier's police car. Wearing hooded sweatshirts, the Tsarnaevs creep up behind as Collier keeps his attention on the intersection in front of him. Now at this moment, Tamerlan opens the car door and fires a volley of shots. Two bullets strike Sean Collier in the head, killing him instantly. The brothers then try to steal Collier's gun, but they can't seem to get it out of the holster. They quickly flee the scene, but now they need a getaway car. 25 minutes later, the brothers spot a young Chinese man named Deng Meng. He's pulled over to the side of the road in his Mercedes. Hey, Casey, like our fans who
2: tune in here on St. Sinners and serial killers, we're all about truth. Working on our projects, I need a boost sometimes. I love my coffee, but I'm really loving these true lifestyle drinks.
1: Me too, Dave. There are six different flavors for every activity. They're gluten and GMO free, organic, vegan, and there's no artificial sweeteners or additives. They're clean. And they contain all sorts of vitamins and nutrients, and they're damn tasty. You know, True's founder, Jack McNamara, is a former pro hockey player, and he created True
2: because he was looking for healthy energy drinks that wouldn't make you crash. I've been loving Energy, the Orange Mango Wake Up Blend, as well as Focus, the Apple Kiwi Brain Blend. Jack and his team have scientifically engineered some game-changing beverages, and I'm working several of them into my daily routine.
1: And I'm making them part of my lifestyle, too. True drinks for true crime fans. Go to drinktrue.com and use the code SAINTS to get 30% off your purchase. Now, back to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers. Meng had stopped to answer a text when Tamerlin knocks on his passenger side window. Don't be stupid, the bomber tells him. You know about the marathon bombings? Meng nods. I did that, Tamerlan replies coldly. Brothers
2: carjack the Mercedes SUV and force Dun Meng to drive. They use his ATM card to steal money and stop for gas. Joe walks into the Shell station to pay and grab snacks for the long ride to Times Square. The carjack victim seizes the moment. With lightning speed, he unbuckles his seatbelt, opens the door, and sprints. He keeps running and doesn't look back. No shots are fired, and he feels no pain. Dun Meng is free. At 12.40 a.m. on Friday, April 19th, 2013, Watertown police officers are alerted to reports of a carjacking in nearby Cambridge. Officer Joe Reynolds spots the stolen Mercedes and calls for backup. By now, Joe Carr is following his brother in his beat-up Honda Civic. Police Sergeant John McClellan joins Reynolds as they flash their sirens, signaling the driver of the stolen Mercedes to stop. They have no idea what's about to happen. Cameron gets out of the stolen SUV and starts shooting without warning. A round pierces McClellan's windshield. Shots fired, he hollers over the police radio. Bullets ping off the squad car as McClellan reaches for his patrol rifle. This isn't police work.
1: This is war. McClellan makes a snap decision. He slams the squad car into drive and lets it roll down the street. He runs alongside, maintaining cover, and takes refuge behind a tree. Officer Reynolds joins him out of the line of fire. Jokar now joins the fight. He pulls out a pipe bomb and throws it in the direction of the officers.
2: Dexter, they have explosives, some type of grenades. They're in between the houses down here. Shot site. Shot sight.
1: Veteran Watertown Police Sergeant Jeff Pugilese rushes to the scene and spots the two bombers hiding behind the Mercedes SUV. Pugilese starts firing, trying to skip bullets off the pavement under the SUV in hopes of hitting one of the bombers. He strikes Tamerlan in the leg.
2: Tamerlan emerges from cover and charges Sergeant Pugilese like a mad bull. They're now 15 feet from each other and both are firing shots, emptying their guns. Pugilis hits Tamerlan as many as seven times, but the bomber still doesn't go down. Finally, Tamerlan runs out of bullets and tries to flee. Pugilis gives chase and tackles the terrorist to the ground. Tamerlan refuses to give up and Pugilis
1: struggles to handcuff the bomber. Next, Jokar jumps into the stolen SUV and speeds toward the massive bodies still brawling on the pavement. Pugilies continues to struggle with Tamerlan until the headlights are just inches away. He rolls off Tamerlin just as the SUV strikes. Jokar hits his older brother, trapping him under the carriage of the vehicle, dragging him several yards. The SUV flies up the street and rams another cruiser, dislodging Tamerlin's body. Jokar flees the scene on foot. While his brother lies cuffed and dying on the pavement, Tamerlan stares and spits at an EMT who's trying to save his life. The EMT says Tamerlan gave him the most chilling look he'd ever seen in his life. From my home in Dorchester, I saw the news of the Sean
2: Collier shooting. I just knew it had to be connected. I got dressed, grabbed my phone and my notebook, and rushed out of the house, calling the Boston Herald News Desk on my way. Head to MIT, my editor told me. As I sped through the dark, empty streets of Boston on my way to Cambridge, my editor called me back. Forget MIT, he said. There's a shootout in Watertown. They're throwing bombs at the police. Head to the corner of Dexter and Laurel Streets in Watertown. Hurry up. I hit the gas and sped onto Memorial Drive toward Watertown. As I arrived in the suburban neighborhood, I was greeted with a chaotic scene. State troopers were running all over with guns drawn, smoke filled the air. I saw a TV news crew standing in the middle of the confusion. A police officer tackled a young man carrying a backpack. This is a neighborhood filled with college kids, all of whom looked like they could be Jokar sarnaev. Everyone was a suspect. Transit police officer Dick Donahue, a friend of Sean Collier's, has been struck in the leg by friendly fire. It'll take a miracle, but Dick Donahue will survive. A Boston police officer named DJ Simmons has battled the terrorists also. A bomb thrown by one of them detonated just a few feet from him. He'll struggle with physical and mental injuries and will die the following year at just 28 years old. I follow police and National Guardsmen as they go house to house searching for Zhokar Sanaev. Platoons of police officers patrol the neighborhood. No one knows why the terrorists came here or whether more bombs might be planted. The scene is eerily quiet and everyone is on edge. I've parked my gray Toyota in the center of their manhunt and it is cordoned off by yellow tape. It's now part of the crime scene and that means I can't leave until they catch him. Boston police detective Danny Keeler has also arrived at the shooting scene on Laurel Street. Police draw a 20 block perimeter around the stolen Mercedes SUV which is now riddled with bullets. Keeler gets his men organized. If you have a vest, you're in. If you don't have a vest, you're out, he tells them. Two guys into each yard, and remember to announce yourself before going in. Don't move to the next yard until the first yard is clear. The tense manhunt gets off to a rocky start. The FBI's tracking dog catches a scent and gives chase with several armed officers in tow. Finally, the dog's handler realizes that the canine is chasing a squirrel.
1: By now, Tamerlan Tsarnaev is in the emergency room at Beth Israel Hospital, where several of his victims are hospitalized. Surgeons fight to save his life, but he dies at 1:35 a.m. His last words were uttered back in Watertown, where he told those heroic cops, "Rot in hell." In an unprecedented move, Governor Patrick and Boston Mayor Tom Menino decide to lock down the entire city. Trains and buses stop running. Residents are ordered to shelter in place. I drive around the city, and I see every corner guarded by armed soldiers and cops. New Hampshire native and Hollywood star Adam Sandler sums up the situation perfectly. He tweets, Boston is probably the only major city where, if you fuck with them, they're going to shut down the whole city, stop everything, and find you. Back at my position in Watertown,
2: the situation continues to intensify. By now, hundreds of police officers have self-deployed here from across New England to join the posse. I see a massive armored vehicle from the state of New Hampshire roll by. Another from Massachusetts pulls up. It stops in front of a house I'm standing in front of. The vehicle empties and a dozen officers in full tactical gear with semi-automatic weapons pile out and enter the home. A neighbor reported seeing blood on the back steps and the cops sweep the house looking for the terrorist. He isn't there. Investigators have identified both brothers and they know where Jokar attends college. Two Black Hawk helicopters land on the campus of UMass Dartmouth and police place three of Jokar's friends under arrest for destroying evidence. Jokar himself is wounded and bleeding. He finds a covered sailboat in a backyard and climbs under the tarp to hide and rest. He uses this time to scrawl his manifesto on the inside of the boat.
1: I'm jealous of my brother who received up before me. I do not mourn because his soul is very much alive. God has a plan for each person. Mine is to hide in this boat and shed some light on our actions. We Muslims are one body. You hurt one, you hurt us all.
2: Jokar lies hidden for several hours inside the boat until a Watertown resident named Dave Henneberry goes outside for a smoke. He notices the shrink wrap on his boat has been partly lifted. He inspects the vessel and sees blood splattered on the deck and a body curled up near the steering console. He runs back inside and calls 911. I have a a boat in my yard There's blood all over the inside There's a person in the boat Are you sure? I just looked in the boat Officers rush to Henneberry's Franklin Street home and surround the boat Noticing a sudden movement inside A cop fires his weapon Bullets start flying everywhere Boston Police Deputy Superintendent Billy Evans screams, Hold your fire! The boat is now riddled with bullet holes, but infrared cameras show that Jokar is still moving inside. Flashbangs are used, triggering thunderous noises. The FBI brings in a tank-like vehicle to shake the boat. At this point, Jokar
1: is positioned along the starboard side. His hand finally emerges from beneath the shrink wrap. He stands with a sniper's scope, beaming a red dot on his bloodied forehead. Show me your hands, an FBI agent shouts. He orders the young bomber to lift his T-shirt to show that he's not wearing a suicide vest. Several police officers then pull Jokar out of the boat and slam him on the ground. He screams out in pain. Two transit officers, colleagues of wounded cop Dick Donahue are given the honor of handcuffing the young bomber. Danny Keeler is just feet away. We got you motherfucker, he says as Jokar is taken away on a stretcher. The city of Boston erupts in celebration. USA! USA! USA!
2: USA! Danny Keeler brings the party to JJ Foley's, a legendary cop bar in Boston's South End. Police officers drink and hug, de-stressing from the most intense hours they've ever faced on the job. Keeler raises a glass of Jameson, looks around the bar, and toasts his men and women.
1: His eyes fill up with tears. His heart is filled with pride. Two years later, on March fourth, two 2015, the trial of Jokar Sarnayev gets underway in Boston. I'm inside the Moakley courthouse for each day of the gripping and gruesome testimony. Jokar's lawyers admit that he did it because nearly all of his murderous actions are actually captured on surveillance tape. But they insist that he's been radicalized by his brother Tamerlan. The most powerful moment in the trial, at least in my opinion, is when we all got to watch the medical examiner describe and show the contents inside of a box presented to the jury. It's the blood-stained Celtics jersey and Patriots t-shirt worn by Martin Richard when he was killed. We also see the projectiles including nails and pellets that were pulled from the young boy's body. The jury finds Jokar Tsarnaev guilty. On the day of his sentencing, Crystal Campbell's father tells Jokar, you failed as a jihadist. Dick Donahue says in his victim impact statement, the most trying time for me was watching the funeral of my friend Sean Collier on television. I live in constant pain, but I'm still standing here. Jokar Sinayev gets his chance to speak and begs for forgiveness. But the judge will have the last word, at least on this day. He tells the young bomber, The evil men do lives after them. Whenever your name is mentioned, all they will remember is the evil that you've done. What will be remembered is that you murdered and maimed innocent people. This was your diabolical siren song, and for this, I sentence you to death.
2: The story should have ended there, but it hasn't. In July 2020, a federal appeals court throws out the death penalty against Joe Karsanaev. The appeals court says that the confessed bomber didn't get a fair trial and that the judge should have considered moving the case out of Boston. Jokar is serving 11 concurrent life sentences and will never go free, but we don't know yet if the United States government will end his life by executing him. What we do know is that the survivors and families of those lost will relive Patriots Day 2013 every day for the rest of their lives.
0: Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. This episode is brought to you with thanks to our sponsor, Work Local in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Special thanks to Mike Southworth for providing the voice of Jokar Sarnayev. Music in this episode was provided by Chris Spagone. You can reach Chris on Instagram at chrissalaneousart. For more on the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit mudhousemedia.com. That's Mudhouse with two D's. And for the latest updates on their podcast and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, please visit fortpointmedia.com.